Happy Palm Sunday. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And we're going to read that familiar passage on Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as King. Indeed, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're going to be looking at roads that Jesus took over this Easter season, mini-series, as we park our series in Hebrews for a little bit. And this is the road into Jerusalem. And if you're wondering what my goal in this, it's the same goal that I have every single Sunday, that hymn put it well, to search Christ's depths. That's going to be our reality in the new heaven and the new earth, to search the depths of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really our life now. That's the way we could describe our life. Or as an old hymn writer put it, more about Jesus would I know. More of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. So when we're looking at Jesus traveling these different roads into Jerusalem through Golgotha and on the road to Emmaus, that's what I want us to see. I want you to see the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. So Luke 19, beginning to read at verse 28, down to the end of the chapter. The Word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple 
began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. We thank God for his word. Let's pray together one more time. Again, Heavenly Father, we have a resolve right now. All of us who have gathered here this morning, we had a resolve when we got up this day, a resolve that was born of your Spirit and born of your grace to gather together with your people and to worship you, the living God. We have a resolve this morning as hearers of your word that you would deal with us first. You would not necessarily, in our thinking, deal with our neighbor next to us. Lord, when we have that thought come in our mind as we hear the word preached that I hope so-and-so is listening to this, may we put such thoughts to death. And may we utter a prayer, deal with me. Deal with me. And Heavenly Father, I have resolved to preach this word well. I've studied, I've prepared. I don't feel equipped enough to do this. And so as hearers and as a preacher of your word, we pray again that you would fulfill our resolves for good, for eternal good. Lord, this passage talks about peace being in heaven. We long, we long to see someone here have peace here on earth. It's available. It's there for the grasping, there for the taking. May they see Jesus this day, not only as King of kings and Lord of lords, but as the Savior of sinners. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The road into Jerusalem is really the story about a coming. There is a Greek word for that. It's actually the word that we also get in our English language for bishop. It's the word episcope. Usually with that word coming, and when you think about that word being used in this context, it's someone coming to actually take care of business. It involves an investigation. It involves doing things. And the earth has been full of comings over the history of the world, and some of them have been bad, and some of them have been good. You think of a, a bad coming, March 15, 1939, one named Adolf Hitler arrived in Prague in what is now known as Chechia, a bad coming for that people. That's not what's going on here. This is a really good coming, at least a good coming for those who have embraced Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus, understand, is heaven's champion sent into the world. He is the one that has come into the world to deal with our sin problem, such that sinners who embrace him might have relationship, fellowship with the living God. That coming to us 
through the instrument, the God-given, Spirit-given instrument of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus lives. He dies for us. He's been raised from the dead. We who believe on Him take part in that eternal life. This is a wonderful entrance. A little bit of a context about the Gospel of Luke and where we are in that Gospel. The portion here actually ends a very long portion in the narrative, really a a biography of sorts of the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He came to do. And, And this is actually called the journey narrative. And that narrative actually spans from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to verse 48 in chapter 19. And if you look at that verse, way back in chapter 9, you see something of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resolve to do what the Father had given Him to do, to live and die and be raised again for sinners. He is like that that horse with blinders on as He peers out into the distance, and he sees Jerusalem. Nothing will dissuade him from that task. So ten chapters have been spent, Jesus marching toward Jerusalem. And leading up to this point, he actually tells a parable, which is key if you're going to understand Palm Sunday. It's prefaced in our text. If you just go backwards a little bit, in chapter 19, you see the parable of the Minas. But Jesus tells this parable why. Verse 11 says, As they heard these things, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. A nobleman coming into a far country to receive the kingdom and then return. That is the description of the entire gospel age, right there and then. I don't know what your eschatology is, but this ought to drive your eschatology. Jesus is the nobleman. Here on Palm Sunday, he, in a sense, receives the kingdom. It's not consummated yet. And he will return one day, once and for all time, to reign in a consummated fashion. So the parable drives our understanding of this great and glorious coming. Again, Jesus is the one of noble birth. He's the son of David, the son of God. He comes into that far country, the world, to receive the kingdom on account of his finished work. And he will one day return to consummate the receiving of the kingdom. And he will judge on that coming, and he will share his dominion with those who respond well. So as you look at what's going on here in this text, you are to think about another time where Jesus travels on another road, the road from heaven to earth on that great and glorious day of the Lord. And we'll come back to that as we conclude. But in terms of understanding the text, the parable, the parable is the lens with which we should view what's going on here. There are three points this morning. Point number one The king declares himself, 
Point number two, the king announces judgment. And point number three, the king cleans house. He declares himself, he announces judgment, and he cleans house. These same three things are going to happen when Jesus comes back. Amen? He's going to declare himself. He's going to announce judgment. And he is going to clean house. This is a precursor to all of that. Point number one, the king declares himself. This is really interesting because if you've read the gospel at all, you'll notice time and again, Jesus telling people, don't tell anybody who I am. You think about Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with them, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Don't tell anybody who I am, not yet, not until I have fulfilled all righteousness. We come to the text here, and it's totally the opposite of that. Here and now, he declares exactly who he is. So see that in the text, reading it again. And when he had said these things, having told that parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. Notice the language. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, notice the language, The Lord has need of it. So he's declaring himself to two groups, again to the disciples and also to the people who are around them. And it's evident for all who have eyes to see. You might be asking, well, how does he do that? And if you're going to tell me that he declares himself to be the living God and the Christ, the one who was appointed by God to bring about salvation to sinners and the King of Kings, the one who would sit on David's throne, if you're going to tell me that by his knowledge here of this colt tied up in Jerusalem is what proves his divinity, I don't buy that. Well, you ought to. You ought to. He is displaying exactly who he is here. If you understand anything about the narrative, there's no going back and forth between Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 19. It is on the road heading to Jerusalem. One writer said, Within the Lucan narrative, Jesus is progressing to Jerusalem, not moving back and forth. Hence, his instructions here concerning what the disciples will find and what they are to do, combined with the narrator's conclusion, those who were sent found it just as he had told them, must point to Jesus' customary prophetic omniscience 
and not as having made prior arrangements. He is the Son of God, even God himself. So he displays that to the disciples. Then he displays it to the crowds. And this is where we see a couple of subpoints. He's displaying who he is. He's that future promised king. He does that by riding a donkey. He also displays that he is the living God. He is God incarnate by receiving praise. Notice, first of all, he rides that donkey in verses 35 to 36. And they brought that donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. If you were back there in that day, you would have understood exactly what was going on. The kings of Israel in the past always ascended to the throne in precisely this kind of way. To give you a couple of examples, and if you're taking notes, look at 2 Samuel 18.9, 2 Samuel 19.26, 1 Kings 1, verses 32 to 40, and 2 Kings 9 to 13. Everyone looking on could have figured out from this act that Jesus was declaring that he was a king. For all the kings of Israel also rode to their coronation. But what Jesus is declaring here of himself is that he is not just a king, he is the king that was promised, the last king who would reign over an everlasting kingdom. See a reference to this in that prophecy concerning Judah and the one who would descend from Judah in Genesis 49 verses 9 to 12. We won't look at that passage, but I will reread our meditation passage in Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now in Zechariah's day, no king in Israel. Zechariah is prophesying prophesying after the exile. The exiles have returned. Yes, we see rebuilding of the temple. We see some glorious things going on. Under Nehemiah, we see the rebuilding of the walls, but no king on the throne. But Zechariah prophesies for God, there's going to be a king coming. And the kingdom that he's going to bring in is an everlasting kingdom. All this we get from Jesus riding on a donkey. Then he also receives praise. As he was drawing near, verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives was about a half a mile to the city, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives, goes through the Kidron Valley. All his disciples break into chorus of praise for the miracles that they had seen him perform. 
And they quote, in part, from a song that was used when Israel's kings were crowned. Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, the disciples at this point, they spoke a lot better than they actually knew. They had some messed up ideas of what the kingdom would be like. They thought at that point, physical. Yes, eventually it's going to be physical. But not at this point, spiritual. And then culminating in a physical kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. But they speak really well, better than they actually know. And what's so interesting here, because we're looking at the character of this one riding on that donkey, is that he has no trouble receiving their praise. Does that shock you? You might be thinking to yourself, well, of course he receives praise. He's he's the son of the living God. He is worthy of all praise. But he hasn't accomplished all that the nobleman came to do at this point. But the fact that he receives praise ought to demonstrate to you his love for his father and his love for you. It's as good as done in his mind. He is going to go to the cross. He is going to conquer sin and Satan and death and hell. And he is going to rise from the dead. And he lets the praise ring around him and he accepts it all. Pharisees, the religious superstars of the day, they say to Jesus, you need to rebuke your disciples. And Jesus has some words here that gives us an idea of how big this event is in terms of world history. It's cosmological what's going on here. It's cosmological. He says, if people don't praise me, the very creation will cry out in praise. It's true. Of course, we know that the creation groans right now in anticipation for the liberty of the sons of God to come to consummation at his return. On that day they will praise too. They would have praised on that day if the people didn't praise. Jesus accepts it all. Now I want to come back to that statement in verse 38, the second half. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now in Luke's gospel, there is another time we actually hear about peace. Glory to God in the highest and what? And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke 2, verse 14, the announcement of the angels, the angels' song. There's a contrast here. What does it say again? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That contrast is significant, and I'll tell you why. Two reasons. In the first place, that peace comes on earth with the first coming of the king, but not in fullness not in fullness. The fullness awaits the second coming of the king when heaven, where peace is in fullness, and earth are made one. That's one thing that we can draw from that contrast. But there's a second thing. In the second place, the contrast is actually an invitation. And if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Hear what is said there. Peace in heaven, it is available for you through this one if you but believe on him. Then that peace will be dispensed to your soul and that for all eternity. Come to the Prince of Peace. 
even Jesus Christ. So on the road into Jerusalem, we see the king declaring himself. Second point, verses 41 to 44, the king announces judgment. The narrative here really slows down. Time slows down almost. The drama of the salvation the king will achieve, it intensifies here. And the judgment that he announces, first of all, is in himself. God will judge sin in Jesus for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I get that from verses 41 to 42. Jesus announces here judgment in himself for those who will trust on him, but he's lamenting when he pronounces this. Because he's looking at Jerusalem and they don't recognize it. They don't recognize that what they need is found in him. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus has cried over Jerusalem earlier on in the gospel in Luke thirteen thirty-one to 34. The city had a history of rejecting the word of God. And now they are poised to reject the word of God, the incarnate word, and the person that would make for their everlasting peace and their reconciliation with God. And what are the things that make for peace? Verse 42. What are they? What are the things that make for our peace? You might be wondering why Christians talk about Jesus all the time. How is it that we get to heaven? How is it that we are reconciled with God? How is it that we will stand at the judgment? And we would say to you, first of all, it is not based on our works. Amen? Because all our works are filthy rags. It is by the work of this one that God sent. He being fully God and fully man. He doing those things that God demands of us but that we could never do. He lives a perfect life. That's why he is born. That's why he lives 33 years. And he fulfills all righteousness, all the perfection that God demands of us. Jesus achieves as our representative. You put your faith and trust in him. It is credited to your account as a free gift. Amazing. Amazing. But then he does something else. He dies. He, the very giver of the law of God, being God himself, subjects himself to the curse of our law-breaking. He being totally sinless. He does the thing that we cannot do. Hell is eternal because we can never exhaust the wrath of God due our sin. It is an infinite offense because it's against an infinite person. But Jesus can do it. And he does it in six hours on the cross and he says, Tetelestai, done, paid in full. Amazing. Fully God. Fully God infusing, I don't know if that's the best word, his work with eternal worth. His work as a man, our representative. In his lament here, Jesus announces that God's judgment against sin will be born in himself 
for all who believe in him. Jerusalem did not recognize him. The second thing that he does here is he announces kind of a temporal judgment which points to a final judgment in the future predicting. Look at verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's that Greek word. History will repeat itself for Jerusalem. Again, temporal judgment he's speaking about primarily here. But every time we see a temporal judgment, it points to that final judgment. Israel of old, they depended on the trappings of religion, the things that they did. They would say things like, oh, we've got the temple, the temple. God's never going to judge us. He would never do that. A relationship with him, it's good, it's solid. They could never conceive of a day when God would reject them and overthrow that which they depended on for salvation. Those Jews of the Old Testament were exactly the same as the Jews here in Jesus' time. And so Jesus announces judgment 70 A.D. is coming. That's when Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's when these words would be fulfilled in a temporal sense. But they point to something further afield, further into the future, a final judgment. We'll talk about that later on in chapter 21, verses 5 to 9. But I want to come back to that statement. You did not know the time of your visitation. We're going to talk a little bit about this tonight, what time we are in when we look at the book of Amos. Is that you? You don't recognize what time it is and what time we are moving toward? We're moving toward another and a final visitation, so much worse than 70 A.D. And my question for you this morning, if you are not a Christian, is will Jesus' pronouncement here be the pronouncement he makes of you when he comes with all his powerful angels? On that awful day, God in his Christ will punish for all eternity all those who have made the decision to go it alone to trust in their own righteousness and not the righteousness that is from God. And I plead with you from the bottom of my heart to recognize now the certainty of that coming final visitation. And you need to flee to Jesus Christ for salvation. Repent and believe on Him. The King not only declares Himself, but the King announces judgment. Now he's the king, point number three. It's interesting where he goes, isn't it? Find on this point that he cleans house. Jesus is in the business of deconstruction and reconstruction. All of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are trophies of his grace in that. He deconstructs us, he reconstructs us into his blessed image. That's what's going on in your life. Reconstruction. It's glorious. Not all deconstruction or reconstruction works. If you look at examples in history, if you're a Civil War buff, for example, you know that, I think it was Sherman who had that scorched earth policy in the South. 
basically laid waste to everything. And it took years for the south to be rebuilt. And even then, a hundred years before those who were of African descent enjoyed any kind of privileges, they thought it might come right away. But it didn't. So in a sense, that deconstruction and reconstruction failed, but not this one. Notice those two points, deconstruction and reconstruction. And this basically forms another paradigm through which we can understand this entire age that we've been living in. From Jesus' first coming to his second coming. It's all about deconstruction, reconstruction. So in the deconstruction, he entered the temple as the king and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, 11. He quotes those two Old Testament portions of Scripture. So he's the king. Now if you're king and if you're entering into a city, where do you go? Where do you go? Where would you go? You would go to the palace, right? If I'm doing this, I knock on Herod's door. Gone. He doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple, the place wherein God manifested his presence. That's extraordinary. And he doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to Pilate's Praetorium, Herod's palace to clean the house. And he doesn't do so because the kingdom that he's setting up is, in the first place, a spiritual and eternal kingdom, though eventually it will encompass the physical too. He therefore goes to his father's house, exactly the same thing he did when he was a little boy, back in Luke 2, verses 41 to 52. Are we surprised, no doubt like the crowds were, no doubt like the disciples must have been, to find Jesus in such a place? They must have been gobsmacked. Should have hung a right rather than a left, Jesus Are we surprised to find Jesus in such a place, in his father's house and about his business, as opposed to the houses of the nation and about the nation's business? Again, the kingdom Jesus came to inaugurate is a spiritual kingdom whose advance in this present day is with what kind of weaponry? Physical or spiritual? Spiritual. You know, it's true. We forget, don't we? It's spiritual, it's the word of the living God, and it's prayer. Some of you may be attracted to a system of theology called theonomy. I'm going to tell you right now, avoid it like the plague. It used to be an outlier in Christian thinking. It has become very, very, very popular today. I'll tell you why. Christians have become frustrated with the moral decay they see in their society and they're impatient for change. You all identify with that? I identify with that. The temptation then becomes to bring about the kingdom of Christ through human institutions. It's not the way it's done. Not the way it's done. I am all for political activism at a level. We all ought to be engaged in the political process, but I do not put my eggs in that basket. 
I'm here preaching the word of the living God. I'm telling everybody about Jesus and I'm assaulting the throne of grace every time this church has a prayer meeting. That's where I am because that's going to bring about kingdom advance. And that's the way it's always been. Don't fall into that particular error. Now back to the text. What does Jesus do when he gets to his father's house? He gets everything, rid of everything that doesn't line up with his father's house. What are those activities? Well, every activity but hearing from the father and prayer. Hence he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And hence he does the following. This is where we see the reconstruction in verses 47 to 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. He was teaching daily in the temple. That's beautiful and it's exemplary and this is our king. This is what we do. We pray, we teach, we pray, we teach, we pray, we teach. That's what we give ourselves to. That's our focus. That's what we keep the main, as the main thing in our lives. Jesus recovers the temple for its legitimate use, namely revelatory teaching concerning the purpose of God. And I would add to this writer and prayer. Well, I wonder... I wonder, as Jesus wanders through the lampstands, what he would say of many churches in our society. You realize he's here, right? Walking through this lampstand, different kind of coming. It does include evaluation. What's he saying about sovereign grace? What's he saying about us? Lined up with what we see here of our king, we his ambassadors, I think think he would find... This is a place of revelatory teaching. And I don't say that to boast or anything like that, that that's a miracle of God's grace. We praise him for it. But what about a house of prayer? I've argued that prayer, the hardest discipline in the Christian life. I don't know of all the prayer times that are happening by the people of God in this place. I just know... I don't want our king who walks in the midst of this lampstand to ever say, you're a den of robbers. I don't want him to say that. You're robbing me of my glory. What are you depending on? You depending on that guy that stands up every single week to bring about kingdom increase? Depending on your own efforts? What are you depending on? Don't rob me of my glory. I don't want him to ever say that. May we be a people of the word and prayer and may the tenor of this place of worship be a a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth that will be realized at Jesus' final coming. And it's all about that new heaven and new earth, communication with the living God. Now, did you notice the responses in the text? Always two. Some hate this, this kind of deconstruction and reconstruction. They hate it, and some are hanging on his words. Blessed Simeon, bless the holy couple, saying to Mary, Jesus' mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that it is opposed. Luke 2, 34. True. True down to this day. 
May we line up with our King in His deconstruction and His reconstruction. And may we realize that He will not fail to accomplish all that He set out to do. He is working now. He works through His Spirit-filled people. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth to which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 13. The king declares himself, the king announces judgment, and the king cleans house. This road into Jerusalem displays the coming of Jesus as the king of kings. It is a good coming. It is good for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who are not, I have to point you forward as I've already done to the end. It is certain These three things that we see here, we will see again. The king will declare himself. Revelation 11.15 The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. And you hear the the pronouncement through the trumpet on that day, and you think to yourself on that day, Okay, I'm going to wake up now, and I've got a chance to repent. The chance will have passed. It will have passed. It's done. No second chances. He will announce judgment. Revelation 18, verse 2 and 20. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, symbolizing the whole world order. Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Verse 20. Now pointing to the elect, the inhabitants of heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then the king is not going to leave the world as a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. He will then clean house. And, And the pictures of Revelation are just, they are designed to frighten They are. They are designed to scare you away from hell. To scare the hell out of you. Revelation 19, 70 to 21. Revelation 19 is all about two suppers. You realize that, don't you? There's going to be a great supper. It's going to make our meager meal that we celebrated last Sunday look like nothing. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're with Him. But those who are not are going to be on the menu. That's what the Bible says. And on the menu for all eternity. Revelation 19, 17 to 21, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Whose supper are you going to be at? The king came 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He demonstrates that he's king and is coming into Jerusalem. He will demonstrate it one last time. Will you be among the citizenry who declared way back then, we do not want this man to be our king? And they were slaughtered. Or will you, along with those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, enter into the eternal joy and fullness of reign of our beloved Jesus? I leave the question with you. Let's pray. How we love you, precious Jesus. Your work is amazing when we contemplate it. Your resolve, amazing. We thank you that by by the grace of our triune God, we have come to believe in you. Make those of us who belong to you, Heavenly Father, all about your kingdom and your way, even in doing that in a strange and inscrutable and mysterious way, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord and the eternal day of God. May this place be a place of revelatory teaching and prayer. May we follow our King well as His ambassadors in this embassy. And again, Heavenly Father, please, 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 Please save many this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen.